welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host, Daniel Larson, as we tee up for another show in which we hope to poke some holes in the Washington blob and call out the hypocrisies of the foreign policy establishment. We are also trying to serve as a check on the primacists who see the war and all war as the only option for our geopolitical tensions and so-called great power competition overseas. We'll be talking to Asal Rod of the National Iranian American Council in the next segment about the current state of the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal. But first, let's talk about the tensions ratcheting up between China and the U.S. over Taiwan this week. There has been increasing speculation of a Chinese attack on Taiwan as Beijing has been flying sorties of fighter planes and bombers ever closer to the island. Officials in Taiwan, including its president, as well as representatives from both parties and the Biden administration here in Washington, have warned that the U.S. must step up its commitment to Taiwan and have been agitating for a more more clear statement of support that goes well beyond Washington's strategic ambiguity approach, which for decades has struck a balance between supporting Taiwan's democratic efforts and keeping the peace with Beijing, which considers Taiwan part of China. So this week, Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria came out with an op-ed pushing Republican legislation, the Taiwan Invasion Prevention Act, which would allow President Biden to bypass the Congress to respond militarily in the event that China attacked Taiwan, essentially giving the president more war powers than it even currently has. Dan, this seems outrageous to me, uh, but somehow not surprising. What do you make of it? Well, I think it's a very dangerous proposal. Uh, it, It essentially would mean Congress cedes its authority in advance to the president uh, to decide on a matter uh, as grave as war with China, which would be, uh, I think, you know, probably the, the biggest and most costliest war that we've fought, at least since Vietnam, uh, possibly since World War II. And so it's, it's a kind of question that ought to be decided uh, very soberly uh, with, with a full consideration of the costs. And I don't think a pre-authorization vote uh, like of the kind that uh, Congresswoman Luria is talking about uh, fits the bill for that, um, and 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 more to the point, we we want Congress to be reigning in the executive, not finding new excuses to give the president more powers, uh, and essentially give them uh, loaded guns uh, in the form of these these pre authorizations that they can then uh, use maybe in situations that where they they weren't really intended to be used, and because we know with any authorization for the use of military force. Uh, presidents will tend to interpret these uh, authorities as broadly as they possibly can. And they will apply them to things that maybe the authors of of these resolutions didn't intend them to apply to. And so this one is being presented as a purely defensive measure uh, responding to an invasion of Taiwan. But it's it's possible that once these authorities are granted to the president, uh, the president will interpret that more broadly uh, in a way that, that pushes us towards a conflict and makes that conflict more likely. Uh, and of course, simply by giving the president this authority, that sends a very provocative signal to China uh, that we intend to intervene. Uh, and it, it's only maybe a couple clicks away from making an explicit pledge to defend Taiwan, which is uh, itself even more provocative. So uh, we, we don't want Congress doing this uh, I, I think it, it's a it's 
it's kind of crazy how everybody's coming out of the woodwork, uh, suddenly insisting that we fight for Taiwan when uh, for 40 years the peace has been kept by not talking about it, by, by, by keeping our mouths shut about it. Because the more that we talk about it, the more that people are forced to take positions about it, and the more that it is, the, the salience of the issue is raised, and the more of an irritant it becomes in the relationship. So if you, know, if you want to maintain peace in East Asia, you, you really want to talk about this as little as possible if you can. And, and what the, the people pushing strategic clarity are doing is forcing everyone uh, to talk about it all the time. Uh, in, in very, uh, I think, unsettling ways, in ways that are bound to generate negative reactions in China uh, that will have consequences we can't fully uh, anticipate. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. I mean, uh, we don't anticipate that a bill like this is going to pass. I mean, I could be wrong. Uh, if if China continues these uh, bombastic displays, which, you know, they are uh, meant to intimidate Taiwan, you know, flying these sorties. And we could talk a little bit about your article uh, regarding, you know, just how close they actually come to the island. But that's another uh, another part of this conversation. Um, but, you know, I guess under certain circumstances, a bill like this could pass. But I really don't think it can, given the you know, the the political dynamics right now. I don't think that, I think there would be enough resistance from both part, in both parties to giving the president more war powers. Um, but you hit the nail on the head when you say it's just the talking about it that is agitating the situation. So when you have uh, Congresswoman Lorraine, uh, well, Elaine Luria out there in an op-ed saying, we need these powers because we wanna be able to fight back immediately if we sense that Taiwan is threatened, you know, what kind of signal is that sending to, to China? Because, you know, her, her op-ed in itself had touched off an entire conversation. Uh, I listened to many of the, the, the hearings over the uh, National Defense Authorization Act over the last month or so. And invariably, there's been a ton of grandstanding by uh, senators and congressmen and women about China and why we need more money to confront China. And we have the CIA just recently decided to create a new China mission uh, to dedicate all of these efforts to confronting China. And so it's just another piece of this sort of narrative that China is sensing, hearing, respond, responding to. What I find interesting is that while we're having this conversation, or at least some of these members of Converse, uh, Congress want to have a conversation about giving the president more war, war powers, there's an effort on the other side to limit his or her uh, war powers for the future. And so you have uh, Congressman uh, Peter Mayer joining Congressman McGovern and Barbara Lee and on the Senate side, Mike Lee and Sanders and Murphy have been trying to push a bill that would make it harder for the president to go to war without congressional uh, consultation and actually putting some teeth into the 1973 War Powers Act. So it is interesting uh, that in this day and age that this is still a debate. We have two AUMFs on the books that have been used by the White House, you know, uh, consecutive White Houses to wage more war in the world. And here you have 
congressional efforts to add another pre-authorization to that. So it's it's not a done deal. Not all congressmen and women actually care about the Constitution in this regard. Well, that's right. And, and unfortunately, we, we've seen this before. Uh, we saw it during the Cold War. Uh, in fact, there, there was a resolution about Taiwan. It was, it was called the Formosa Resolution uh, passed under Eisenhower, uh, where the president was seeking uh, broad authorities uh, to be able to respond uh, to to whatever uh, moves against Taiwan might have been made back then. And uh, uh, Wayne Morse, we, we've talked about him, I think, before, uh, one of the only senators to vote against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. He was a very vocal opponent of this because it was a sort of, a, you know, a, a a pre-made declaration of war. I think uh, he, he described it as, as you know, sort of a, a pre, a pre-declaration of war, where you're already committing to this course of action uh, ahead of time, or when you haven't really considered uh, what will be at stake in that conflict. Uh, I, I'm actually a little concerned that something like this could pass, because right now it's very easy for members of Congress to uh, to posture and to to strike an anti-China uh, pose by voting for something like this, to, to hand the loaded gun to the president and then wash their hands of it later uh, when things finally go wrong. Um, it, it would be much more difficult, I think, for members of Congress uh, when they're confronted with the reality of a, an armed conflict uh, over Taiwan uh, to cast that vote uh, you know, quite so uh, simply as, as they might do years in advance, um, especially because there's not gonna be as much attention paid to it now uh, when they're going to be voting on it, it will it will end up getting lost in the the mix. Yeah, that's uh, a good point, um, and that and that that's a good segue into what I also wanted to talk about, which was your piece in Responsible Statecraft, where you brought uh, in the media's role uh, right. in hyping this up. And so, if the media continues down this path of hyping up. Uh, Chinese belligerents hyping up this idea that there's an imminent attack uh, in the offing that could lead to members of Congress being very skittish. And then when asked to give the president authorization, they might feel more compelled to. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and, and we see, we've seen over the last really year, year and a half, uh, how much anti-China hysteria has been whipped up uh, in the media. And, and that really reached a, a crescendo uh, in the last few weeks uh, with these uh, flights through the air defense identification zone that uh, Taiwan has declared uh, to give itself advance warning of planes moving in its vicinity. Uh, the, a lot of the, the coverage that we saw was was really inflammatory. It was irresponsible, uh, claiming that these planes, military planes from China, had gone through Taiwan's airspace or had flown over Taiwan and, and you know, making it sound as if they were uh, either preparing an invasion or, or sort of doing a dry run for how an invasion might proceed. And that wasn't what was happening. They were conducting exercises in international airspace, just like lots of other countries do. Uh, they were they were flying from bases on in their country out over the ocean and then back again. Uh, this, I mean, and as you said before, it is intended to intimidate Taiwan. It is intended to to stress their air force by forcing them to scramble jets uh, to to warn them off, uh, but it is not the kind of hostile action or aggressive action uh, that a lot of people were making it out to be, and and so I, I fear that in the event that there is something like a real crisis or there there is uh, an incident that happens where things are not so clear cut, 
uh, and where the, you know, the, the potential for misinterpretation or miscalculation is greater, uh, a lot of our media outlets are going to be fanning the flames for war uh, and, and members of Congress are going to, to follow the crowd and they're, they're going to pander to the crowd and we're going to find ourselves uh, stuck in a conflict that we, don't, we weren't really prepared for and that we don't understand the full costs of. Uh, one of the other things that I find very alarming about the coverage and the, the commentary about all of this is that very few analysts, very few pundits talk about the fact that China and the U.S. are both nuclear-armed powers. Uh, we, we talk about a war over Taiwan like it'll just be uh, a skirmish with missiles and, and boats, uh, when it could very well escalate to something much worse, uh, and in which case you're talking about not just uh, serious devastation on Taiwan itself, uh, but potentially uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of people killed in a nuclear exchange. And even if that's a, a small likelihood, uh, it's something that has to be weighed as part of the risk. And, and I don't see anybody, or I see very few people, seriously contemplating that as a real possibility. You know, and I don't know if you know much about this, but I've seen reference to it that the, the Pentagon at some level did wargaming simulations on right. a U.S.-China conflict, and the, the U.S. didn't come out looking so good. Have, have you seen this, this reference? And, and why don't we talk about that more often? Is it just a little bit too uh, squeamish? Are we too squeamish to talk about the actual reality of what a such a conflict would look like and how we might not win it? <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, I think some of it uh, comes from the people who are talking about this most often are the ones who want us to make guarantees to Taiwan. So they want to minimize uh, what the likely costs are going to be. They want to make it seem as though it's not going to be that bad and that we you know, will we'll come out of it without suffering serious losses. Uh, I think an important antidote to that is some of the commentary uh, coming from Daniel Davis in the last few weeks, uh, where he has spelled out uh, pretty clearly that even in the best case scenario where we, you know, quote unquote, win, where we repel an invasion, uh, we're still going to take serious losses. And in the event that we don't win, uh, we're looking at uh, significant losses uh, to our Navy and, and to our global standing. So it's, and, and of course, if there's then a nuclear exchange, the losses become uh, catastrophic. So we're, 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 I think we're not talking about it for, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, hawks don't want to pay attention to those potential costs. And I think uh, the the reality of what this war is going to be still hasn't sunk in for a lot of people. Uh, Americans for now more than 30 years are accustomed to having uh, total air superiority in conflict. They're used to having uh, all of the conventional advantages and they don't know what it would mean to go up against a serious conventional adversary uh, that is set up to actually fight us uh, on our own ground, so to speak, or you know, in, in the way that we're used to fighting. So it's, uh, it's it's a real problem because I don't think anybody or very few people have a, a clear sense of what the dangers are, and we're just sort of stumbling ahead into it because uh, we, we need to have a new enemy, and China is the one that we've decided upon.
Our guest today is Dr. Asal Rod. She is a senior research fellow at the National Iranian American Council. She has a PhD in Middle Eastern history from the University of California, Irvine, and a research focused on modern Iran with an emphasis on national identity formation and identity in post-revolutionary Iran. She works on Iran policy issues and U.S.-Iranian relations. Her work has appeared in The National Interest, The Independent, Newsweek, and Responsible Statecraft, and she has appeared on the BBC, Al Jazeera, BBC Persian, and NPR. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. It's great to have you on. Uh, looking at the, the state of the talks around the nuclear deal, uh, we see that the indirect Vienna talks aimed at salvaging the JCPOA remain in limbo. Uh, now there are reports that the Biden administration may be contemplating additional sanctions, and it has been seeking to pressure China to curtail its oil purchases even further. Uh, what are the prospects for a successful restoration of the JCPOA, and what does the Biden administration need to do to make that happen? Uh, well, I think the first thing that's interesting about what you said is it's indirect talks, right? And the reason yes. that they're indirect talks is because the Biden administration has not returned to the deal. Right. Um, I think that's a key thing that that we should recognize um, and a disappointment for, I think, a lot of the people who were expecting the Biden administration, who supported uh, candidate Biden to becoming President Biden, was that he would resolve this sort of foreign policy blunder of the Trump administration, which was uh, quitting the JCPOA and you know, allowing Iran to expand its nuclear program. Um, although I will note it's a civilian nuclear program still, right. uh, but just, you know, not allowing the same oversight and limitations that the JCPOA had. Um, and we really expected the Biden administration to sort of return quickly. Um, as we saw on day one of this administration, uh, it reversed a lot of the policies of the Trump administration, for instance, revoking the Muslim ban, returning to the Paris Climate Accord, you know, it seemed like this was fitting into that. But unfortunately, the domestic political situation in the United States didn't really allow for the space for the Biden administration to do so. So these talks are indirect because the U.S. is still not a party to the deal. Um, and I, the reason I emphasize that point is because, you know, there's a sort of expectation that now that there's a new administration, that on the Iranian side, there should be a difference in how they approach it. And yet for for the Iranian side, for all intents and purposes, nothing has really changed on the ground. The Biden administration has basically maintained um, all the trappings of maximum pressure. And by that, I mean sanctions. I mean, the sanctions that have uh, affected the entire Iranian financial sector, the sanctions that Biden himself a year ago said was impeding uh, the flow of essential and humanitarian goods to Iran, those all remain in place. So uh, in terms of what the Biden administration can do, well, you know, and I think that the timeline is something else important to bring up. You know, now you hear a lot of people talking about, oh, well, you have the, the Raisi administration in Iran. Um, they don't, what if they're not interested in returning to the JCPOA? This is what analysts said early on. This is why there was an argument to say that the Biden admin needs to take immediate steps rather than sort of delaying, which is precisely what they ended up doing. They, they had initial missteps in not you know, seizing the opportunity of having the Rouhani administration in Iran that was extremely engagement friendly, wanted a return to the deal. In fact, wanted a return to the deal before the June elections in Iran. And unfortunately, again, the Biden administration dropped the ball on that. So now... It seems framing the issue as it is Iran's responsibility to 
to uh, get negotiations going again seems interesting because really we haven't seen any steps on the U.S. side. We've seen very, very moderate steps on the U.S. side, but nothing substantial um, that would even show a goodwill gesture. And that has been, you know, interestingly enough, I think there was an article uh, a couple of weeks ago saying the Biden administration basically rejected goodwill gestures. I mean, on its face, that sentence seems odd, right? Like we reject goodwill gestures. What does that even mean? So if we're going to continue this sort of U.S. hardline against Iran, then we can't expect to see different results, especially when this administration and officials that serve it criticize that very line when it was the Trump administration administering it. So, you know, where we stand is you still have uh, the the international community supporting the deal. Um, You had the UN Secretary General back in June talking about urging the United States to ease sanctions on Iran to to return to compliance. Uh, You have Enrique Mora, who's planning to travel this week to Tehran, and all of this is in hopes of resuming talks. And on the Iranian side, there are signals that say they they plan to do so. Um, But I, I would caution against this idea that the U.S. has no role to play or we're sort of sitting here with, you know, no options on the table. Uh, we do. We have the option of returning to compliance ourselves. And Iran has already signaled many times that if the U.S. does so, so Iran will comply as well. Um, so, yeah, there are options that we have. And those options uh, don't have to be military options, which is sort of our default Sure. And when we just, I think we just heard this week from Rob Malley, the Iran envoy, uh, who characterized the expression of a willingness to lift sanctions as the confidence building measure that they are so pleased with, that they think is such a great example of their confidence building measure, but they're not actually prepared to to do the work of lifting the sanctions. And so they 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 treat talking about doing something as though that's going to generate goodwill instead of actually doing it. Uh, you, you mentioned other options, and we've seen a lot in the press uh, talk, uh, especially leaks coming from the Israeli side, talking about how the Biden administration is interested in other avenues, other options that might be taken if diplomacy fails. Uh, do you think that's intended mainly as a sop to Iran hawks here and in Israel, or is it a more serious problem than that? Um, I think it's both at the same time. And, and the reason I say it that way is the the reality is that we can't really talk about U.S.-Iran policy without talking about Israel. Israel is obviously a significant U.S. ally. Um, and, you know, I bring this up because I think it's so important. If the U.S. is to be taken seriously as a, as a peace broker, as, uh, as sort of a a leader in the international community and leading this idea of the international rules-based order that we espouse and talk about so much, then we have to apply that rule the same across the board, right? As long as we don't apply it the same, that's why we constantly get the sort of criticism from um, from other states as well. And, and we have a sort of blind spot when it comes to Israel. Um, the fact that you know, you have a prime minister, the new prime minister in Israel, Bennett, talking about going to that the UN Security Council needs to take measures against Iran because of its nuclear program is basically laughable, right? Well, it's like, well, the UN endorsed the nuclear deal. It is an, it is an international community endorsed deal. And yet it was Israel that sabotaged that very deal. I mean, you talk about um, international monitors on Iran's nuclear program. Israeli sabotage damaged IAEA equipment in Iran. So a lot of like these these points that right now the IAEA is talking about with Iran in, in fixing the equipment 
that equipment was damaged by Israel. But these are the things that we don't talk about, right? These are the parts that we don't ever say um, because that would run counter to sort of the, the political narrative that we've built in the United States. But yeah, I mean, I would certainly be concerned about where this Israeli government pushes um, other options, quote unquote, for the United States, because we've already seen that they will take action, right? You see that in the sabotage attacks. You see that in assassinations of Iranian scientists. I mean, these are all attacks that are illegal by every uh, international law standard. So the fact that Iran has not retaliated is not something that we can we can or should be betting on for the foreseeable future, um, especially now that you have a different administration in Iran. And, um, you know, something to keep in mind is part of the reason why likely, I should say, reason why Iran showed so much patience in in light of the pressure it had under the Trump administration is because it was waiting to see where the U.S. goes. And so we brought in a new administration that promised to return to the deal, and yet here we are. Hi, Asal. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, We've been hearing a lot lately about Iran uh, increasing its enrichment capabilities and how that is playing into the deal. And from the hawks on on one side, they're saying, see, you know, this deal, uh, they they were never um, trustworthy. Uh, This deal, it just shows that we should have never engaged in this deal in the first place. Um, They've gone way too far. And uh, at this point, it's going to be hard to claw them back to the original, like the timeline of the deal. Can you talk a little bit for particularly for listeners who haven't been watching this as meticulously as maybe you have or as 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 Dan has about a where things stand now on uh, Iran's um, keeping to their end of the deal? Leave us out of it for a second um, and how that might be played and how playing into future negotiations. Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is the idea that someone who didn't support a deal that limited Iran's nuclear capabilities is now talking about the expansion of its nuclear capabilities as a point of not trusting them is ridiculous on its face. You didn't support the deal that actually limited the exact thing that you're now complaining about. And it is a fact that Iran was complying by the deal. Every IAEA report says that Iran was complying by the deal. It was the United States that quit the deal. Um, and I know we have short-term memories and you know we don't like to go back even a few years. This is not, you know, I'm not asking for uh, an analysis of like mid 19th century. This is talking about two or three years ago. Not only was Iran in compliance when the US quit the deal, Iran maintained its compliance with the deal for a full year after. Every bit of expansion that we've seen in its program has been a consequence of the U.S. not holding up its end of the deal, essentially, having quit the deal. And the reason why there's a year gap. So why did Iran continue complying for a full year after? Because they were actually waiting to see if the other parties to the deal could basically give them the intended economic relief that was promised within it. And they couldn't do. They couldn't do anything. The European powers couldn't do anything. Why? The power of U.S. sanctions. There were secondary sanctions that didn't really allow anyone to do business with Iran at all. So as Iran's economy is being crushed by U.S. sanctions, they're still they were still abiding by this deal. Now, in terms of Iran going back to the sort of origin of the deal in terms of you know numbers of centrifuges or uh, the percentage of uh, uranium enrichment, uh, their stockpile of uranium, all of that can be reversed. 
as it was back in 2015, right? Iran had a massive stockpile of uranium in 2015. It was all gone after the deal. Um, but there is one aspect that can't be reversed, and that's you know research and development. You can't reverse knowledge, right? That cannot be reversed. But but what's fascinating uh, within the framing of these conversations is always the notion that Iran is assumed to a want a nuclear weapon, and it's always assumed to be a threat, a nuclear threat, despite the fact that it has no nuclear weapon. And it's interesting because the logic in that is never questioned, right? Like here is the United States, the the second largest nuclear power in the world, thousands of nuclear weapons. And it's basically calling the only country to have ever used a nuclear weapon. But it's saying that a country that has no nuclear weapons is a nuclear threat. Who is echoing this? Israel, which is the only power in the Middle East that also has nuclear weapons. Um, you know, Iran and other powers in the region and other like states in the region have talked about creating a nuclear free zone in the Middle East. Who objects to this? The United States and Israel. So if you want to make it, if, if nuclear proliferation is, is truly the, the concern that we have, which I think should be, then logic dictates that the entire region be nuclear free. But of course, this would take away a nuclear advantage for Israel. And that's what we're not, you know, we're not, not only, we don't even acknowledge that they have nuclear weapons. So I think, you know, part of the problem is we're not having really honest conversations about what the problem is. And that's why we're not finding any real solutions to, to the conflicts that we're in, in many ways, we're manufacturing ourselves. Could we talk a little bit more about sanctions? Um, you know, it, invariably, I have heard, and I believe this is true, that the sanctions have really crippled or played a, 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 a chief role in crippling the Iranian economy. On the other hand, you know, I've heard that Iran has been able to end run some of the sanctions and uh, sort of um, blunt their impact. Uh, and that it, you know, basically shows that imp that sanctions don't work because after a while they were able to sort of find creative ways of, of working with other countries and keeping the economy at least afloat. What's the truth there? I mean, in terms of how we talk about sanctions, whether they work or, or whether they don't, and how they're impacting the targeted country, This, in this case, uh, Iran. Is it that the sanctions aren't working, that they can always get around them, or that we're crippling them to death, or somewhere in between? <laughs> I think it's a combination of those things. So when, when the literature, and the literature is sort of unanimous on this, that, that literature on sanctions, and when I say literature, I mean academic literature and scholarship on sanctions, is that they don't work. And what they mean by they don't work doesn't mean that they don't hurt their eco the economies of the targeted places. It means it doesn't change their behavior if that is the intended goal of right. the sanctions, right? So it's like when we say they don't work, they don't work because if your intention was, for instance, in the case of Iran, if the stated intention of these administrations was uh, curtailing Iran's nuclear program, guess what? Sanctions didn't work to do that. Lifting sanctions worked to, worked to do that. An actual negotiation where they were promised some kind of relief worked to do that. Uh, but just putting pressure, a pressure-only policy doesn't really work in affecting the behavior of that country. In fact, what a lot of um, sanctions literature will show is that it, it, if, again, if one of our objections is, say, the authoritarian nature of a state or the corruption and, and, and uh, financial corruption of a state, this increases it. Sanctions increase all of that. Um, so, and, and that's what you see in the case of Iran. Now, in terms of do they, you know, do, does Iran or any other state find ways to get around sanctions? To a certain extent, yes, because they have no choice but to do so, right? If you're 
if you need certain goods imported or your economy is collapsing, uh, any state would try to figure out a way to get around these things. But is that does that mean it's not impacting their economy? Of course not. It's ex- impacting their economy extremely. I mean, Iran faces hyperinflation. Um, it it has shortages of basic goods and medicines. Um, there was a campaign uh, a year or two ago about shortages of insulin. There are uh, shortages of specialized medicines. I mean, Iran is very, very uh, self-sufficient because it has to be, right? It's been under sanctions actually for, for four decades. Yeah. But um, 97% of its medicine is manufactured in the country itself. But that 3% is specialized medicine. It's life-saving medicine. So when you hear about uh, hospitals not having chemo meds, for kids, that's, you know, I mean, that's the direct impact of sanctions. And it doesn't really, you know, I mean, the there's this idea um, in, in the hawkish sort of camps that say, oh, but humanitarian, uh, you know, humanitarian goods are exempt. Yeah, on paper, this is true. Even President Biden, he wasn't the president at the time, but even President Biden, you can look this up, Medium, he had a post April 2020, where he's talking about uh, the Trump administration's need to address sanctions, U.S. sanctions, that are impeding the flow of humanitarian goods to Iran, specifically because of COVID, right? Now he's been president for quite some time. At this point, those sanctions remain in place. So there is a clear acknowledgement of the fact that despite what's on paper, no one, no bank is willing to risk uh, violating sanctions for a transaction with Iran. Right, a bank is still a business. It's still it's still being run with the idea of profit in mind, and it has no reason to want to engage in biz- of any kind of business, even a business that's allowed, because Iran is the most sanctioned country in the world. The sanctioned policy is so convoluted that no one even wants to touch it, and so that's why it's not happening. It's not because they're not allowed to. It's because they're not they want to deal with it. Exactly, exactly. That's a sort of perfect term to use. For but yeah, I mean sanctions. The other, the flip side of it, when you look at the U.S., right, when you look at the U.S. perspective alone, forgetting any other country, I mean, having sort of flexed this economic power to the extent that we have also shows our own hand, right? It shows our own weakness in a certain way. Um, And so we've now invited countries around the world to try and figure out a way of getting around not just U.S. sanctions, but U.S. economic power. Absolutely. And... uh... One of the things I wanted to come back to in talking about sanctions, you, you've written about uh, sanctions as economic warfare as part of uh, U.S. forever wars. And uh, so we, we need to remember that economic warfare is still warfare and kills innocents uh, just the same as, uh, as bombs uh, and uh, other weapons. Um, do you see any signs of progress in Congress and in the foreign policy debate in Washington more broadly that more people are recognizing that sanctions are a kind of war instead of an alternative to it? I want to be more optimistic than I am. Um, There is some, you know, I mean, I think there is some acknowledgement from members of Congress um, about the sort of uh, depravity of sanctions, right? We talk about, it's almost more nefarious than than conventional warfare because of the fact that it's masked as this benign policy tool, right? It's when you go to war, um, it, you don't, we don't deny the impact of, well, actually we do, we deny the impact of war and bombs as well, but not to the same extent that we do with sanctions. With sanctions, it's just like, oh, you know, here's this sort of legal language we're going to use to discuss something. 
uh, we're not hurting anybody. We're just, you know, hurting the people in power when in fact, it's always the reverse. You're hurting ordinary people and you're, you're devastating them, not just killing them. You're killing them slowly. Um, and you know, there's the, when the Biden administration came in at the, I think it was at the end of January, they said they were going to have some kind of sanctions review. That review was supposed to be completed by beginning of October. I, from my understanding, I haven't seen any report on that review yet, but while, you know, while we're sort of contemplating all of these policies, it's killing people around the world. There are different places where our sanctions are impacting people. I mean, in Iran, over the course of the last, under maximum pressure, um, you have reports saying that something like 10 to 15 percent of the middle class has been forced into poverty. That's millions of people forced into poverty. How How is this an objective that we have, a political objective? And then you have people uh, in the political discourse in the United States talking about, you know, the Biden administration shouldn't give up its political leverage. Like, well, you know, starving people is not should not be considered political leverage. But here, this is what we're doing. And so I think there is some sign some signals that um, there's a little bit more sort of like open discussion about sanctions. The fact that, for instance, someone like Joe Biden a year ago recognized that our sanctions were impeding humanitarian goods to Iran, again, is like a, a small, I think, signal um, and, and a hopeful opening. But it's still not nearly, uh, it's not nearly where it needs to be in terms of understanding that sanctions are warfare. Like that understanding does not exist. We still think of them as benign. They are not. Sanctions are economic warfare is warfare. Well, when you take away people's livelihoods, when you take away foods and medicines, when they cannot survive, you are at war. That's, you know, you're forcing what happens when uh, in terms of in a war, you have refugees, you create refugees, you do so with economic warfare as well. That's one of the major push factors that pushes people out of their own countries is when they have no way of sustaining a living in that country. So you have very similar consequences. And those consequences come back to bite us, right? They, they, they create, they extend these sort of instabilities, again, in, in very similar ways that um, conventional warfare does. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it really is a, a form of inhumane uh, collective punishment and so in, in beyond being just warfare, it's, it's, it's a war crime, really, wouldn't you say? I absolutely, I 100% agree. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that the idea that we would have a policy in place that we know prevents, I mean, just look at the fact that we're in a pandemic, right? If, if you needed any more evidence of the cruelty of this policy, Think about the fact that we're in a pandemic that actually our own, again, our own administration talks about this idea of beating COVID. Now, it's not beating. You can't beat a global pandemic in your own nation state. Right. That's the entire point of it being a pandemic. We, we've talked about this over and over again. When it was the Trump administration failing miserably in dealing with COVID, you had all of these people who were criticizing it and saying that you, you, you know, you have the international community saying lift sanctions because sanctions are directly impacting their ability to combat COVID. Look at our own economic fallout from COVID. Now imagine um, in the midst of 3,000 Americans dying every day from COVID, if you know the most powerful economy in the world decided to sanction us, and so now we don't have access to basic goods, how would that help us to combat this pandemic? It's not just a matter of vaccines, right? When, when the calls to lift sanctions were made by the international community, that was at the very beginning of the pandemic. It had nothing to do with vaccines. Vaccines is, a, is its own issue um, that should be discussed and how we've done the vaccine rollout on a global scale 
is is quite sad, right? It's not it's not nothing close. You have clear uh, concentrations of countries that have been vaccinated and, and most of the world still has not. But beyond vaccines, we have experienced this ourselves. You know, like you you have you need other things uh, in COVID. You people are still getting other illnesses. It's not like every other illness in the world has gone away and now we just have COVID. So when you really are crushing people's abilities to to have access to basic goods, it, it continues to impact their ability to fight any kind of pandemic. And that is absolutely a crime. Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate to see that it's it's still, the sanctions are still in place. Uh, and we're, I mean, we hope that that can be changed in the near future. Uh, we're, we're out of time now, but thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sal Rabb of the National Iranian-American Council. Uh, we appreciate having you here, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you again for having me and having this opportunity to speak. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.